This is Pet Life Radio. Let's talk pets. So why do seagulls live near the sea? Because if they live near the bay, they'd be bagels. Welcome to Wings and Things, where you'll find real answers to real questions about everything you want to know about pet birds. Care, feeding, bird products, travel, and more. Everything to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. From parrots to parakeets, cockatiels to cockatoos, you'll have a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about your fun, feathered friends. So, spread your wings and get ready to fly on Wings and Things. Welcome to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm your host, Barbara Heidenreich from Good Bird Inc. Robin Chiwokas has the week off. This week, I was fortunate to spend time with Nick Bishop, bird trainer and presenter from the Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. We'll be right back after these messages. Sitting on a branch overlooking the parking lot, the pigeons watched as a Mercedes pulled in below them. What do you think, one bird said to the other. Should we put a deposit on that car? Stay perched. Wings and Things will be soaring back right after these messages. What if you could protect the life of your cat with something so simple and affordable that you already use every day? Get ready for the evolution of kitty litter. It's Pretty Litter. Along with all the features you've come to expect from your kitty litter, Pretty Litter's patented and scientific formula will also monitor your cat's health and detect illnesses early while providing industry-leading odor control. Two kitty litters, same cat, same price. But there's one important difference. Pretty Litter reacts to your cat's waste by detecting health issues simply by changing color. And the key is that Pretty Litter detects these issues before your cat shows symptoms of physical illness or pain, likely saving you major dollars in vet bills while protecting the health of your cat. What do you think, little guy? Ready to switch litter? Pretty Litter. Colorful insight into your cat's health. Go to prettylittercats.com forward slash cat 101 or use coupon code cat 101 to get 20% off your first subscription order. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things on Pet Life Radio. I'm here with Nick Bishop from the Taronga Zoo. Would you like to say hi, Nick? I'll say g'day, Bob. Oh, you're right. I didn't speak Australian, did I? <laughs> <laughs> so I, when did we first meet? Was it a few years ago It was in at Australia? the Parrot's 2006 seminar in Brisbane, Queensland, Australia. That was two years ago, yeah. Okay. Well, and uh, of course, Nick is a bird trainer at the Taronga Zoo, and and those of you who have had a chance to see that show, it's an absolutely fabulous bird show, one of the best in the world. Certainly, and one of the most beautiful settings you'll ever find with the whole sweep of the harbour, the bridge, the opera house, beautiful ocean, all the bush around the shores of the harbour. It's a really magnificent setting to showcase some of our amazing Australian bird life. And what are some of the species you have in your show? Well, we specialize in raptors and parrots. We also have some other amazing things coming along at the moment, like a young little pied cormorant, which we're going to do a special routine with. Dives into the water, training to get himself tangled up in a little bit of plastic rubbish to show how easy it is for marine animals to get tangled up in that way. 
We're also training six beautiful red-tailed black cockatoos mm. to fly with our six crazy sulfur crests at the end of the show. That should be something worth seeing alone. Oh, I have to agree with you on that. The red-tailed black cockatoos, they just make my heart melt. <laughs> yeah, they're beautiful. And you know what's amazing about them? is compared to the sulfurs, they have such a different way of operating. They're so much more shy, gentle, steady in some ways. Sulfurs are those rakish crazy teenagers of the bird world who are always there in their revved up car looking for trouble looking for things they can stir up they're an amazing bird and their attitudes couldn't be more different so it's great to work with two sets of birds that are fairly closely related on the family tree but have such different operating systems in the way they go about doing things it makes a great trainer out of you and keeps you on your toes well, having spent more time with you on this trip, I think, than last time, because I was only in Australia for like three days, um, I have certainly come to know that you are definitely a bird nerd. <laughs> <laughs> That's true. <laughs> you, you really love birds, and you know a lot about wild birds. So tell us a little bit about how you, how you got to be such a bird nerd. Well, I can't really say what the very beginnings of my ornithophilia were you know my great love of birds has been around since I was a young kid certainly I was noticing all animals from a really young age but my father was generous enough to help me set up some aviaries when I was a child and I kept the usual standard things that kids keep especially budgerigars zebra finches all of those l-plate birds that you have when you're starting out and I think that that led me to uh, notice birds around me even more sharply than I already had been so before long, I was drawing lots and lots of bird books, my own bird books. And by the time I got to my last years in my secondary schooling, I was drawing a lot of scientifically detailed illustrations, particularly of parrots. I've always been a group with which I've been completely fascinated. And why not? Australia has always been known as the land of parrots. And you can be walking down your suburban street in my country and you'll see any number of fantastic parrots, rainbow lorikeets in the street trees, rosellas maybe on the lawns, galahs flying overhead, and so they're all around you all the time. When you're saturated with opportunities to admire such beauty, it's easy to get more and more and more attuned to that. I think though, as a person who is very observant of the things that are going on around him in his life, and wanting to illustrate that, you begin to, to see more and more diversity and appreciate that increasingly as well. So the way that the avian form has basically been tailored to meet a bizarre range of different lifestyle challenges, the way the pressure cooker of evolution has actually streamlined all sorts of birds into all kinds of different shapes is pretty much intoxicating for me. I love it. I can tell you are very passionate about birds. Yeah, sure. <laughs> when I was um, starting out in my zoo career, I also started a graduate certificate in applied ornithology with Charles Sturt University, which is based in country New South Wales here in Australia. And I achieved that in 2004, graduated then. It was a great experience. It allowed me to do a number of subjects that were really useful. Avian biology, taxonomy, evolution and biogeography of birds, and things like ornithological methods, you know, good preparation for field work, and also um, behaviour ecology and conservation. 
So those four sets of subjects were a really great way to focus me on getting a little bit more rigorous and organized, perhaps a little bit more formal about uh, this incredible thing happening around me all the time, the birds that were able to access every day if we just care to get out there and pay some attention. So how did you become a bird trainer? Well, I was very blessed to start off at my home zoo, Adelaide Zoo in South Australia. I'd lived there all my life. And indeed, I'd been going to Adelaide Zoo as part of my childhood culture. I can remember young, being a young kid and, and going to birthday parties there with all my little buddies and my mum making me novelty animal cakes. She'd raid my plastic animal box and uh, ice my cake in a really garish way <laughs> and stick animals all over it. That was my first experience. My actual first ambition ever in life in terms of a career path was to be an elephant. So inspired was I to be an elephant. People say to me, what are you going to be when you grow up? And I'd say, I'm going to be an elephant because I was so inspired by elephant at the zoo. So it wasn't a bird. It was actually an elephant obsession to begin with. It certainly Adelaide Zoo uh, kept my focus because when I was 18 years old and I left school, I applied to become a volunteer guide there. And I did this on and off. I had other things going on. But I did this for that, that decade from the age, about the age of 18 till I was 28 when I started to take my interest in being in the zoo and paying attention to um, the birds there and indeed conservation matters in general a little more seriously. Fortunately, I was able to get a part-time contract and that went on to full-time work. I met up with some great colleagues there, particularly one Ryan Watson, who's remained a great friend to this day. He's also a real parrot head, and we trained some blue and gold macaws for free flight. Having had a background in musical theatre and acting, I was also uh, really impressed with the theatrical element of this and totally thrilled with the ability to be able to bring birds out and fly them just by using the magic thread of positive reinforcement to actually capture those opportunities to build that trust between the bird and the handler to get that relationship going, to actually observe the bird, its body language, to harness the power of motivation, to move the animal forward in such a way that you could completely blow people's minds having these garish tropical birds flying around and squawking and doing their things around our central lawns at Adelaide Zoo. I was hooked, absolutely smitten, and was convinced that this was nature theatre that really needed attention from me, that I really wanted to look at the way I could unite my passion for theatre and performance, with my love of ornithology. It's been a really happy melding. To that end, I then ended up in Taronga Zoo because there were more opportunities to work with a more diverse bunch of birds and to experience a number of different techniques in handling them. When we train things, it's really important to remember that every individual creature comes with its separate history, its own set of experiences, And that gave me a great chance just to look beyond the species brief. We all know that an eagle is different from a parrot, but to look at them all strictly as individuals and to tailor my approach to their tastes was really exciting. And to always remember that as soon as you enter into a training contract with an animal, you're being trained as well. It's a two-way street. There's a great humility and a great lesson to be learned from that. And now you're really trying to help bring this information to young people. I'm passionate about the opportunities that I had as a young person. I had some great neighbours who assisted my interest in birds. I had um, a market gardener that lived across the road who kept scores of budgerigars and lovebirds. 
and another gentleman down the street who had some Australian parrots. Both of these gents allowed me to look after these birds, and indeed it was with their tutelage that I came to appreciate the art of aviculture. Two years ago, when we met, I also met my mate Shane Hancock, who is a really gifted and passionate early childhood educator, an amazingly organised visionary when it comes to the Parrot Society. I think he must have about 20 hands hidden somewhere to get all those fingers into the multiple pies that he has them firmly wedged into. And we had the opportunity to have a chat. And I was saying, you know, what we really need is a chance to start engaging young people with the issues that surround us in our field. Not just aviculture, not just companion birds, but conservation issues as well. So our brief was pretty much three-tiered. To that end, we worked towards setting up a quite successful supplement to the Parrot Society of Australia magazine. And we've released about 10 issues now. Every second month we feature a new parrot or new set of parrots with a conservation corner, a species detailed brief that I write, Nikki Bird's training tips as well, and another article, Back to Basics, which just talks about something to do with aviculture to help refine the skills that young people have in that way. There's also things like word finds and other puzzles on the back, and I also use my drawing ability to create an original drawing for every edition that we lodge on our website as a downloadable PDF so that you can get those multiple copies printed off to uh, keep yourself occupied. You, if you're a parent and you want to do it, you can print a copy for each of your children. And, and that's a free item, is that right? It's a free item. It's completely free. And yeah. where can they find that? They can find that as um, part of their subscription to the Parrot Society of Australia. Their membership comes with that magazine. Every second month you get a beautiful glossy magazine with lots of useful articles, fantastic stuff, not just about companion bird training, but there's a big emphasis on aviculture as well. The supplements tucked in there, nice, colourful, dynamic, ready to go for a few hours entertainment. Great. We'll, we'll have that website for you too. But we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, um, Nick is going to tell us about a really exciting training experience he recently had uh, in another country. So we'll be right back after these messages. Stay perched. Wings and things will be soaring back right after these messages. Put on a perfectly possum pet party. Having an awesome birthday or adoption day celebration for your four-legged friend? Or just want a fun excuse to throw a fun party with your friends from the dog park? Deck out your party with Molly and Bandit Pet Party Accessories. Party products designed specifically for pets. There are wearables, including adjustable pet party hats, bow ties, and tutus. The photoprop kits include funny glasses and hats. The party supplies and decorations include coordinating table covers, party banners, cake decorations, and treat bowls, cups, and bags. Everything you need to create great memories and Instagram-worthy photos. They're available in two colorful themes, Tropical and Fireman. It's a dog's life. Celebrate it with Molly and Bandit Pet Party at mollyandbanditpetparty.com slash petlife. Let's Talk Pets on PetLifeRadio.com. A Frenchman walks into a bar with a parrot on his shoulder. The bartender asks, where did you get that thing? The parrot replies, in France. There are millions of them. Don't have a canary. Wings and Things is back. Welcome back to Wings and Things with your hosts, Barbara Heidenreich and Robin Shawokas, who has the week off this time. Uh, we're back with Nick Bishop from uh, the Taronga Zoo in Sydney, Australia. And recently, you had the pleasure of working with a very endangered species of macaw. How about you share some of that experience with us? 
This very endangered species of macaw must be one of the celebrity endangered birds of the world, the Spix's macaw. It's a highly celebrated parrot from northeastern Brazil. When we think of macaws, we often think of those flouncy, very colourful tropical birds. We picture them flying through rainforests, but this is a bird of quite a dry habitat and a very limited range. Because of the pressures of its own scarcity, brought about not only through habitat loss with grazing and cropping practices, but also then poaching from the wild, its numbers plummeted in the late 90s to a very perilous state. About 120 birds left in the world, and I had the great opportunity to work with some 65% of the remaining Spixus macaws now held at the Alwabra Wildlife Preservation. It's in Qatar. It's that little nub of land that comes off the Arabian Peninsula, juts into the Persian Gulf there, just north of that greater landmass of Arabia. Alwabra is a superb setup. It originally started life as a hobby farm, and it's now run by Sheikh Saud bin Muhammad bin Ali Al Thani. The whole, the whole thing was initially established by his father as a hobby farm. And indeed, nearby, they still maintain numbers of exquisite Arabian horses. But the preservation is now completely given over to looking after endangered wildlife from all over the world. There's a huge number of different gazelle and oryx species there. They also specialise in Somali wild ass and a number of different wild goats and sheep. However, for me, the crowning glory of the collection, I have to say, being a birdophile, is all of the birds, particularly three sets of birds that they really go for there. The birds of paradise, the bowerbirds and the parrots. And Sheikh Saud has numbers of the three remaining blue macaws. And those are the hyacinth macaw, Lear's macaw and Alfred the Spix's macaw. So the reason I was there to actually assist my mate Ryan, who I started out with at Adelaide Zoo, he's now the Blue Macaw Coordinator, or as we call him in shorthand, the Macaordinator. And he is responsible for every aspect of the care of those birds in the program, as well as being the international stud book keeper for that species. So his role is really important. What we wanted to do was see if we could train a number of birds to do what we call station for us. That means just come down and be nice and still in one spot. We wanted them then to build on that, to actually put another behaviour on being in that, des that designated area, and that is make contact with their beaks by biting onto a target stick. So it was a, first of all a station, then a target. But why would we do this? Well, we wanted to be able to put some hormone supplement into, believe it or not, their nostrils. In bird terms, they're called the nares. They're those little nostril cavities that sit in that bit of skin just above the bill. The reason why we wanted to put the supplement in there is because the cell wall layer is only one layer thick just inside there. So uptake into the bloodstream is very quick. This formula doesn't have to be in there very long to be effective and to go through into the bird system and start affecting those bits that are responsible for producing those lovely sperms and eggs which create more lovely Spix babies. So that's what we were about. Certainly 
a trial, it's an experiment, it's um, picking up a thread of hope and trying to find a way to bring birds that are reproductively compromised into the kind of shape you want them to be for a successful breeding outcome, create more beautiful spixes, macaws. And how did the training go? Did you actually have some success? We did have success. We had success with all the birds we worked with. What I was saying before about birds being individual was again applied in this case. Each bird had a very different history to the other. We had eight specimens to work with, four males, four females. They were drawn from very diverse backgrounds. Some birds had lived in Switzerland, others had come from a facility in the Philippines, yet more had been bred on the um, preservation itself. And so there was a real mixed flock and they all had different experiences. For instance, we had one bird, Mr Funnybeak, who was the most chronic offerer I've ever met. He would do anything to get you to give him reinforcement and he would just have us in fits of laughter with his antics. The other extreme was a bird that we initially christened Frady because it took me, as the leader of the training exercise, a full week just to get that bird inside, to start trusting the process, to start understanding that my hand equaled good things, that if he was prepared to actually approach my hand, he could get reinforces. For these purposes, small pieces of nut as a, um, a way of, of rewarding, of reinforcing his interest in the whole process. So he was like a tough nut to actually crack in that respect. This was a great experience for myself and my two volunteers, Karen Cheek Justice from Parrot University USA and Nicole Lung from Cologne in Germany, who's a parrot rescue and rehab volunteer there. Both of these women were fantastic in the program as well. And by golly, we worked really hard to get those results. We had 28 visa days and we got results with all the birds. We only had two birds though that were actually designated for the hormone supplement therapy and one of those birds unfortunately due to a medical issue had to be removed from the program but that one bird, that bird called Frady, who when we discovered that he was no longer a Frady, he was actually just a Freddy to us. Um, he, we, we rechristened him because he was just such a bouncy operator and he became a star pupil. He was by far the best at holding still on the target stick while I was literally, I felt pouring drops of initially water to get him used to this sensation into those nostrils. And we thought that this might be something where we might come into a bit of a classical response, a bit of a reflexive response, that the bird wouldn't be able to help, that he'd want to sneeze it out. But to our great surprise, and I must say delight, it didn't happen that way at all. We had very few sneezing, and we found that we could just put drops in. As soon as one went in and settled in there, it would just wick the remaining liquid into the nostril. And that way, the whole process was quite efficient, and the bird really took up the product brilliantly. So we managed to start the program of 10 days worth of those treatments before we left. Wow. So when will you hear about results? Any idea? Well, I've actually just emailed my colleague Ryan to hear a bit of an update. He's been very busy in a way at the AFA convention in the States, or the AFA, another, another convention in the States. And so I, uh, I'm yet to hear back from him about how it's going at this point in time. But I know that immediately after we left, the program seemed to be running really, really nicely. Great. Well, when you have an update, we'll be sure to get in touch and, uh, and get you back on here telling everybody all the wonderful success you're having with the Spix <laughs> That'd be great to hear. But you know, one of the things is that's so rewarding about doing this work is that it doesn't matter if you actually get a long-term, glitteringly successful result. The point of the matter is in the present moment that you get that behavior with the animal, that you've added something to its repertoire because you never know 
this doesn't work this time, you've still taught them something that could be very useful for a future application. And that's the real joy of doing this kind of work. Especially conservation work. I think typically people are thinking about behaviors at home that have to do with maybe not biting when they step up or, you know, going back into the cage when cued, things like that. But this is a whole other application of positive reinforcement training that probably hasn't been explored to this level before. Really, and you hit on something that's really dear to my heart there. I am convinced that all of these techniques can play an increasingly important role in preparing animals in diverse ways for great conservation outcomes. And that's why I was just so enthusiastic about getting in there and trying this out. Because I think that applied behavior analysis, the art of reinforcement, understanding how you can actually get your bird to learn how to learn towards a great outcome for its whole species. Surely there's there's no higher and more worthy aim than that in the work that we do. Yeah, excellent. And, and thank you so much for sharing that story with everybody because I am sure they're going to be following it now and <laughs> hopefully being very interested in what's happening with conservation of blue macaw species. And uh, do you have any final words you'd like to share with everybody before we end our interview? I'd just like to encourage everybody out there to keep their eyes peeled in their daily life for whatever opportunities they get to enrich the, the lives of the birds that are in their care. There's many opportunities that present every day to do that. And it's not just about the birds, it's about your relationships that you have with the people in your life as well when we start to actually think in terms of the behaviour we want and how to get it started, rather than what we don't want and how to get to stop. A whole new world of much better, more dynamic living opens up for us. But certainly, as far as the birds are concerned, keep on looking for those opportunities to capture them doing something you want and reinforce them to create great lives for all the birds in our care. Well said. Thank you very much for your time, Nick. Thank you, Barbara. On to the upcoming events. Coming up on July 26, I'll be teaching a parrot behavior and training workshop in Cincinnati, Ohio. And then on August 7th, I'll be presenting on solving parrot behavior problems at the uh, Gallery of Pets in Austin, Texas. Then on August 9th, Robin and I will both be in Jacksonville to do an enrichment and training workshop. Then August 11th through 14th, we'll both be at the Association of Avian Veterinarians Annual Conference in Savannah, Georgia. You can find more information on that particular event at aav.org. On September 27th, I'll be in Las Vegas to teach a parrot behavior and training workshop. And more information on that one can be found at lvbirdrescue.com. October 3rd through 5th, I'll be teaching at the Gabriel Foundation along with Dr. Susan Friedman, uh, avian veterinarians Jerry Labondi, and Dr. Lori Hess. And this will be uh, an event, a three-day event, actually, focused for the uh, veterinary professional. And then October 11th is the LIPS Expo, the Parrot Expo, Long Island Parrot Society Parrot Expo. The Robin will be at this event. They have great vendors, and uh, Robin will also be presenting at that event. November 1st, a parrot behavior and training workshop in Shreveport, Louisiana. I'll be at that one, and you can find in more information at acbc.net. Then November 8th and 9th, everybody wants to mark their calendars to come down to Austin, Texas, where it will be nice and warm. I, I think I can promise that. That's a parrot training and enrichment weekend in Austin. We'll have a full day of, uh, of behavior and training and a half day on enrichment. 
And let's see, after that, we've got May 29th and 31st. We're having you mark your calendars way in advance for this one. It's the Best Parrot Conference, Behavior Enrichment Science and Training, and that'll be held in Edison, New Jersey. Um, we do have a website for that one, bestparrotconference.com, and then you can always find out more information at goodbirdinc.com on any of these events. Now, because we had our lovely friend Nick Bishop here, there's a few websites we'd like you to visit to learn more about some of the things he does. You can go to taranga.org.au for information about the Taranga Zoo. And if you'd like more information about the Spix Project at Awabra, the website for that one is uh, http, your colon, your two backslashes, and then awwp.awabra.com. And you spell Awabra, A-L-W-A-B-R-A. I hope that makes sense. awwp.awabra.com. But it's a great site. It's got really good detailed information on the Spix Macaw, so you want to check it out. Of course, you can always visit our websites, goodbirdinc.com and theleatherelves.com. And in addition, there's some good reading on training for medical behaviors at goodbirdinc.com backslash digital media. Um, you can uh, find two articles there, Training Your Parrot to Accept Oral Medication and Training Birds for Medical Behaviors to Reduce Stress. And those might be of interest to you if you like the idea of training your parrots to cooperate in their own medical care. And of course, uh, Nick talked a lot about looking at birds out in the wild and I can't stress what a great education that is and there's some great field guides out there whether you're in the U.S. or Australia. Um, a good one for the U.S. is by National Geographic and another one um, called the Sibley Field Guide to Birds. So check those out if you're into bird watching or would like to be. And as far as my training tip of the week, um, I'd like to recommend that you get creative in your training goals. A lot of times we, we kind of get stuck in a rut on training some behaviors, but think about like what Nick did with the Spix Macaw. That was really a, took some thought on the part of the people caring for those birds. They thought about some out-of-the-box ideas on things they could try with parrots that, that are hopefully going to make a big difference in conservation. So get creative in your training goals and also have a little faith that you can get there. Sometimes we don't think it's possible, but if you believe you can do it, a lot of times you get there. All right, well, with that, we're out of time this week, so um, be sure to contact us at robin at petliferadio.com or barbara at petliferadio.com. And if you'd like transcripts of the show, please visit www.petliferadio.com. See you next time. Join us every week on Wings and Things and get a bird's eye view of everything there is to know about pet birds and how to make your frequent flyer a happy camper. Wings and Things, only on PetLifeRadio.com.